0: If you have your Bibles, go ahead and uh, grab them and turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Uh, We're going to read verses 1 through uh, 13. If you do not have your Bible with you, you are more than welcome to use one of the black Bibles in front of you. Uh, Our passage can be located on page 816. It'll be Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 13. We have been um, working through just the second chapter of Acts. Uh, we've been looking at the community that formed in that first believer, the, the the apostles and some of the followers, those first 3,000 believers that came together. Uh, we've been studying what community life looked like to those first believers and the purpose of this was so that we could essentially hold up a mirror to FAC and ask the question here at First Alliance Church, do we care about the things that we should care about and do we not care about the things that we shouldn't be caring about? Right? These are our priorities. These are the things that we can't let fall. Uh, two weeks ago we, we looked to see that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. Uh, last week we looked at how they were devoted to the fellowship And the breaking of bread. And this week, we'll get the honor of looking at the fact that they were devoted to the prayers. They were devoted to the prayers. They were a praying church. And so I think Luke chapter 11 is actually a perfect. to turn to as we look to Jesus and his own teaching on prayer, on what it is, and how we should go about doing it, and how we should conduct ourselves when we pray. And so let me read the, the first 13 verses here, and then we'll begin. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, "'Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples.'" I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impotence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? And Heavenly Father, we are now going to ask for the Holy Spirit. Uh, to to move in this place, to illuminate these words, Lord. I recognize that the words spoken this morning are completely and utterly powerless without the work of the Spirit. And so would he move today as we look to your good and perfect word. In your holy name I pray, amen. Uh, th- this past week, I I grew ill. I, I was very sick. It Felt like somebody had uh, drop kicked me to the face, um, and I was fairly bedridden for for an entire day. Uh, and when this happens, I find myself stumbling across random and useless things to watch on Netflix. Uh, this is my normal. This is my normal routine when I'm when I'm sick. And I came across a documentary on the 1990s. <laughs> the decade what a great decade the decade of the 1990s and one of the many episodes that i that i watched actually took its entire time to focus on the gulf war uh, specifically operation desert storm Um, If you're unfamiliar with the operation, it was led by uh, General Norman Schwarzkopf, and it began with an air assault against Iraqi forces who were attempting to invade the neighboring country of Kuwait. Over the course of about 40 days, the general dispatched coalition planes on about 100,000 different missions, dropping about 85,000 tons of explosives over key targets in Iraq. Um, it's been said that uh, as ground troops began to move in after the air attacks, That the Iraqi soldiers were so depleted and so demoralized that they were actually surrendering to CNN crews that were going in who were reporting there. The war had been long, had been won long before any soldier ever stepped foot in Iraq. Uh, Greg Steer, um, who wrote this book called Gospelized, actually uses this illustration. He uses this illustration to display the practical impact of prayer and the practical impact that prayer has on our life. This is what he writes. He says, it's only through prayer that you can call in the missiles of God's power from heaven to obliterate the enemy's strongholds over your community. Uh, The community of Acts chapter 2. Those first believers knew that if they were to do anything worthwhile, if they were to do anything um, that had any real impact, anything with power, they must devote themselves to the most powerful weapon in their arsenal, and that is prayer. Because prayer is the channel in which... We are yielding to the Holy Spirit. We are giving ourselves over to the Holy Spirit in order to tap into His power for an effective and a holy life. So you see, when we go to prayer, we are accessing a supernatural power. And this is why here in Erie, our work here at FAC, we, we have to saturate everything we do in prayer. Because without it, It's an empty work. It's a powerless work. And it poses no real threat to the evil forces of this world. There's a quote that has stuck with me over the years from this um, early 1900s century preacher, or 1900s, um, by a guy named Samuel Chadwick. This is what he says. I've got the words up on the screen. He says, Satan dreads nothing but prayer. His one concern is to keep the saints from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil. He mocks our wisdom. But he trembles when we pray. He trembles when we pray. Why does he tremble when we pray? Because he knows that we are calling on the power of the Most High. See, the devil may be able to overtake us in our flesh, but he cannot overtake the Spirit of God. And this is why, as you read through Acts, and as you recount the continuing history of the church, you see this pray-first philosophy. You come to find that prayer was the engine behind every single decision that these people in Acts made, that these early believers made. Yes, they had a strategy. Yes, they had a plan. But uh, prayer fueled the strategy. Prayer fueled the plan. Here are some examples, just to name a few. Acts 1, they prayed uh, first when they were filling leadership positions. In Acts 4, they prayed when they were threatened to stop evangelizing. In Acts chapter 6, they prayed first when they decided what their key leadership priorities should be. In Acts 12, they prayed when Peter was thrown in prison. In Acts 13, they prayed first when they sent out their first official missionaries. In Acts 14, they prayed first when they were selecting leaders for new uh, church plants. They prayed first. First, about everything. And I fear that sometimes in our modern day context, our prayer life is very reactionary. And what I mean by that is that we're not praying first. We're only praying when things come across our desk or when things come across our path. Something happens. Somebody gets sick. Oh, we have to pray about it. Uh, Something happens at work that, that went wrong. Oh, we have to pray about it. And that's good. And I'm not saying it shouldn't be reactionary, but what I am saying is that that shouldn't be our only prayer our our entire prayer life should not only be reactionary we need to adopt this pray first mentality because it's through this that we attain the power of the holy spirit right and this pray first mentality was modeled for them by none other than who jesus christ See, Jesus in his flesh would often go away to pray, and he would even miss a few ministry opportunities in order to do it. Jesus very easily could have played the God card and depended on his own strength and his divinity, but he didn't. He He chose in his humanity, in his flesh, to submit to the Father and tap into the Holy Spirit in order to receive strength and wisdom and guidance through his life, as he journeyed through his life. The the power that he had to walk and do ministry was not his own power, but that of the Holy Spirit. Jesus has displayed this for us, what it means to be human, looking to God for help, looking to, to God as the source. And so it would make sense for us to look at what Jesus has to say about prayer this morning in Luke chapter 11. Now we have to understand coming into this, that there have been thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of books written on prayer. You probably come to the table with tens of thousands of questions uh, about prayer. And unfortunately, we won't have the time to answer all of them, but we're going to try and answer three we're going to be very laser focused in our approach this morning and i believe that this passage brings clarity to three questions about prayer and i'll give them to you up front for your own note taking purposes if you choose to do that verses 2 through 4 what do we pray for what do we pray for how do we pray verses 5 through 8 How do we present ourselves in our prayer? How do we compose ourselves when we pray in verses 9 through 13? What can we expect as a result of praying? Before we get to the answer of those questions, though, we need to take a look at verse 1, which actually sets up the teaching of Jesus. It sets the scene. You know, we're told that Jesus was praying and then when he finished, obviously there's something different about how he prayed. The disciples look to him and say, Lord, one of the disciples says, Lord, would you teach us how to pray like John taught his disciples how to pray? It, basically, they're, they're asking is, what they're asking is, hey, Lord... John the Baptist has followers. He's taught them how to pray. Can you teach us how to pray like John the Baptist did his followers? I think this request actually lends itself very nicely to our community study in Acts 2 uh, because this is a community request. You see, see what's happening here is that they see a, a community that is following John the Baptist that that is marked by certain distinctions marked by certain characteristics and they see that Jesus is forming his own community of followers and they want to pray in a way that marks their distinctions that marks their characteristics so that people can when when they pray they will know i am a christ follower See, they're not simply just asking, blank uh, blank requests, Jesus, teach us how to pray. These men were Jewish. They, they knew how to pray. They had prayed their entire life. The temple actually would have two set times of prayer. Every single day, they've probably been praying their entire life. And so they're not asking Jesus, teach us to pray. What they're asking Jesus is in our new context, in our new community, Lord, would you give us a new pattern? This can be applicable today because sometimes our prayer life is a pattern and it is a pattern that we have picked up from somebody else, whether it be a friend or or a pastor or a certain teacher. Um, we, We have developed how we pray, a pattern for how we pray. And what these disciples are saying is, Lord, we want our pattern of prayer to reflect the fact that we are your followers, that we are in a community following you, right? That's what they're asking Jesus in light of this new community that you're forming in the context of being a Christ follower among other Christ followers. How do we pray? They want their community context, which is under the umbrella of God's promises to inform their prayers, And just as their request is a community request that is representational of all of them, Jesus' response is a community response. He's saying when you pray. And that word you is plural. He's not just talking about you and you and you and you. He's saying when you all, when you do this, when you all pray, say this. There's a very real corporate thrust to this prayer. It's not just an individual prayer that I say myself, but one that is meant to be the heart of the full community of believers, spoken as if with one voice in unity. And what is this prayer? It's in verses two through four. What do we pray for? Jesus introduces us to what has now become known as the lord 's prayer it 's it's an, it's an abridged version of it, and it 's really quite a deceiving name because it 's not really the lord 's prayer it 's actually the disciples prayer it 's a prayer as disciples in community they 're praying to God, and we need to look at this as a model okay this is a a pattern we don 't have to say these exact words every single time we pray we, we don 't need to to, to say these exact words and only these words when we pray, but we can use it as a framework for how we go about prayer. Our prayer should look something like this. What Jesus is instructing here is that when we do pray, this is where our hearts should be. This is what our minds should be set on and should be focused on. And so let's walk through this this briefly. First, we are called to address God as as Father, this would have been a very new concept for the disciples. In the Old Testament, um, God is only referred to father, I believe it's 14 times. And every single time he's referred to his father in the Old Testament, it's actually in the context of him being the father of Israel. Once again, the community as a whole, there was nothing personal about this, right? In the New Testament, though, every single time, that Jesus refers to God every single time with the exception of one time. What does he call him? Father. He calls him Father. And he's telling his disciples, guess what? You can call him Father too. He's introducing, he is bringing in a new concept, a new relational factor in that they call him Father. It's a term that still upholds the authoritative nature of God, but it connects it with an intimate relationship. It's, It's a title that recognizes authority in the context of a loving, fatherly relationship. You know, with with my own children, I am their father. I have authority over them. I can tell them what to to do, right? They they are not necessarily my pal or my friend, but I love them. You see, there's a difference there. While I have authority over them, I, I love them, and I care for them, and I care for them in a way that I don't care for other people's children. It is a different kind of intimate relationship, And this sense of intimacy doesn't disregard respect, which is why the very first line of the prayer is, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. This can be difficult to understand because we don't really throw that word around very often. We don't say, "Oh, this is a hollowed morning," or "This is a hollowed uh, evening," or "That person is hollowed." Right? What does that mean? Is it to give us some uh, understanding of this, if you were to go to Washington D.C. Uh, and you go to the different memorials, you may come across the Vietnam War Memorial. I had the chance to visit there last summer, and it was wonderful. But when you um, approached that memorial that had all the names written of those who had. Fallen in the Vietnam War, there was, a, there was a different atmosphere about the place. There was a great deal of respect for the ground and for the wall and for other going on. It was completely silent. There were hundreds of people there when I was there, but nobody was talking, right? Because it was special. There was something different set apart about this ground, about this area. We would call this, this is hollowed ground, And what we mean when we say that is this is set apart for a special purpose for something else. This is unique. This is different. This isn't your normal uh, land. And so when we say, uh, Father, hallowed be your name, what we're saying is, Lord, let your name be holy. Let your name be set apart. Let it be unique. Let it stand alone and carry the authority that only your name can carry. And to say, hallowed be your name, is to say, Father, I am not coming to you as an equal, but I'm coming to you as a humble servant. I recognize my place. I recognize that positionally I am mere dust to you, that without you I am nothing, that I am completely and utterly deprived and destitute. Without you, hallowed be your name. Let your name be holy. When we come before God with our requests, it's imperative that we remember our place. This will set the proper tone for our requests and our prayers. And it's fascinating when we look at what the first request in this prayer actually is. It has nothing to do with our own life. What is it? It's your kingdom come. This is saying, Lord, we live in a fallen and broken world. But it's our desire that your perfect kingdom would be established here on earth. This request longs for the restoration of God's perfect creation. And as we read through scriptures, we find that there will come a day that Christ is going to return, and he's going to establish his perfect kingdom. He's going to bring it back. That is a promise. You see, what Jesus is modeling is that our prayers need to start with God and his holy name and his divine promises, and that should inform our requests, if there's one thing I want you to remember this morning as you pray, it's this. Your requests should be informed by his promises. His promises should inform our requests, which is what the disciples requested, right? He's saying, hey, in the context of this community that longs for the promise of restoration, here is my request. Your kingdom come. We have to set our sights on God and his purposes and let that shape how we request and what we request. Everything we do and everything we ask for should reflect what God will eventually do. How many times in our own prayers do we start with, Father, I need this and I need this and I need this. Father, this went wrong, so could you fix it? We we treat them like a little genie, right? But that's not the case, and that's not how it should be be viewed at. And I'm going to challenge you this morning. Are your requests, are your prayers kingdom-minded? Are they kingdom-minded? Are they fed with eternity in mind? Because this will shape how we pray in the practical and personal sense which is what comes next in this prayer. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. And then once our hearts are set right and our mind mind is focused right, the prayer changes, as uh, Charles Swindoll would say, from the high and mighty to the practical and, and personal. Once we've looked up, now we can look in. Give us each day our daily bread. Th- this phrase will actually uh, uh, alludes to the desert. Right, It alludes to God's provision uh, in the wilderness to the Israelites um, when they only collected enough manna for one day. Right, It recognizes that our, our most basic daily needs uh, come from God, and it is a call for God to sustain us. It symbolizes everything that we need to survive and that he is our provider and we are dependent on him. See, this was in a context where most people would be paid daily. They weren't living from paycheck to paycheck. They were living from day to day, and this was very applicable. They would be paid daily, and often that's what they would need to live off of for that day. They would make enough bread just for that day. There was no stocking up for most people. There was no such thing as preservatives for most people. There were no savings accounts for most people. So what this preaches is a daily reliance, a daily dependence on God to provide. Too many times we worry about the future. We worry about tomorrow when God merely wants us to trust Him for today. You know, we look and we say, God, I'm worried about what's coming next year. Or I'm worried about what's coming next month. Or I'm worried about what's coming next week. Or I'm worried about what is coming tomorrow. When God is saying, I haven't given you grace for that. I've given you grace for today. And so lean on me today. And then when you get to tomorrow, you're going to need to lean on his grace for that day. And the day to follow. Take advantage of the grace for today. And then the prayer takes a spiritual turn. He's he's, he's saying, Lord, would you forgive me and grant me the ability to forgive others? Would you lead me uh, on a path away from temptation? You know, what trust must I have to come before him today to, get, to give me what I need for the day, grace and independence and, 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 and wisdom and strength? But, but Lord, how much more do I need? What does it take for me to forgive those as you have forgiven me? How much more do I need to lead me in a way, to lead me in a way that, that does not go into a path of temptation? Right, Lord, would you guide me on a path away from from temptation? Would you help me with this? And this is the model that Jesus has given us. Daryl Bach, he's a commentator, writes that uh, in summary of this prayer, the prayer as a whole reflects a disciple's total reliance on God and his care. He continues on saying that this prayer binds us to God, recognizing that the affairs of life are often a matter in which we either walk alone or walk with God, our hand in his hand. That is what we are to say when we pray. And how do we present ourselves in prayer? How do you go about approaching the throne of grace? That answer can be found in a parable that Jesus shares in verses 5 through 8. And interestingly enough, while our position is one of humility, our attitude should be one of boldness. There's no need to be timid about our requests. Before we look at this parable to truly appreciate it and understand for all it's worth, there's just three cultural implications that we have to understand before we kind of dive into this. First, we've already discussed, and that's food was not readily available. Uh, As I mentioned before, their food would be prepared daily. Second, hospitality. Hospitality was considered an obligation and a responsibility of that culture. They had a very high regard for hospitality. Visitors were expected to be cared for no matter what time they arrived. And finally, number three, kind of an odd one, uh, most homes in that time only had one room, and so the entire family would actually sleep together in the same, in the same sleeping quarters, in, in the same bed most likely, in the same area. And so as we look at this story, we have this man who faces a dilemma of, of sorts because he has a late night guest, a visitor that comes at midnight, but he has no food to serve him right this is like the person with the gift of hospitality this is like your worst nightmare right when we invite guests over you will hear my wife uh, she'll t- say this about me all the time that I just don't want to run out of food if we run out of food that is the worst possible thing that could ever happen right if if we run out of food and this is what this man is facing he's received a guest he's run out of food and so he has a choice to make He's either going to be rude to to the guest by not welcoming him in a way that's customary, or he's going to seek food from a neighbor friend. However, it's the middle of the night, and the neighbor's kids are asleep. Who has the audacity to potentially wake up a friend's child? You see, for those of you with little children, or who have had little children, you understand the ramifications of this you know the, the the toil and the turmoil that i have just spent hours and hours just to get my my kid to to just close your eyes please just go to sleep i'll do anything right they they like hold us hostage sometimes all you want them to do is sleep and you finally get them down and then your neighbor has the nerve to start knocking on that door, and if you wake my kid up, I'm going to ring you by the neck. I'm going to let you put them back to sleep. This is the, the tension that has kind of built up in this story. There's great tension here for the man seeking bread. However, he is so concerned with welcoming his guest that he goes boldly to the neighbor to request bread. And this is where Jesus gets to the main point of the story. You see, the neighbor does respond, but he doesn't give him bread because he's a friend, but because of the impotence of the man making the request. According to one commentator, this word impotence actually kind of has two different qualities that are combined into one. There is a sense of boldness, and there is a sense of shamelessness. You see, the nerve to make such a request. It's, it's the nerve of the man that, that the, his friend ends up giving him the bread. It's, it's a recognition of such boldness that his neighbor honors his request. And so the big takeaway for us in this story is that Jesus encourages boldness in our prayer. He wants us to be bold. And why can we be bold? Well, we go back to the Lord's Prayer for the answer to that. Your kingdom come. Once again, His promises have informed our request. We can be confident and bold in our prayers because of our assurance in the promises of God. Because of our assurance that His promises ring true. If our requests are kingdom-minded, we have no reason not to be bold. We have no reason not to be bold. Now the response is still God's choice, but the door is open for the request. And it's open for the request because of what Jesus did on the cross. You have access to be bold before God, because of Jesus' substitutionary sacrifice. We can approach the throne of grace boldly because of Christ. See, in Jerusalem there was a temple where people would go to worship and you would have to go there to worship God properly. And in this temple there were several different sections. And the innermost section is what they would call the Holy of Holies, It was the most sacred spot in the entire world. They they kept the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, which was a representation of God's very presence. They would call this the throne room of God, and it was inaccessible. There was a giant, thick curtain that separated us from the throne room of God. In fact, only the high priest could go in and only the high priest could go in once a year. And he couldn't go in just because he wanted to. There was one purpose to go into the Holy of Holies and that was to make the atoning sacrifice for the nation of Israel. It was the only time a mere human could approach God. When Jesus said, it is finished, it is And died on the cross. That curtain was ripped in two from top to bottom, giving us access to the most holy place. Jesus, as a high priest, makes the sacrifice of himself in order to allow us to approach the throne of God. We have access to God. We were separated from God, and it is only through Jesus that we are brought back into speaking terms with him. And so you do not need a mediator to go to God because Jesus serves as your mediator. You do not need to to pray to anybody else or go to anybody else to pray on behalf of you because everything needed to to be done has been done for you by Jesus uh, 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 on behalf of you. Everything that was separating us, every barrier that was separating us from God has been demolished because of Jesus. You can now approach God Almighty. You have an audience with God Almighty. And so petition Him boldly because it was bloodshed that enabled you to come before Him. That is how we present ourselves in prayer. And what can we expect as a result? Jesus answers this in verses 9 through 13. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now this isn't just a blank check request. Jesus is not saying that you can... Ask for anything you want or it will be given to you. No, he's not promising to give us everything we desire, but he is promising to give us everything that we need. In the context of verse 13, he's promising us the Holy Spirit. So saying, you, you need the Spirit's power to get through the day. I will give it to you. I will give him to you if you ask. We are allowed to be enabled and empowered by the Spirit. We're allowed to ask for the Spirit's help. We're allowed to tap into Him as a, a resource. You need strength to face the day, God will provide. You need insight and wisdom in a situation, He will provide. But you have to ask. You have to make the ask. James 4.2 actually speaks pretty clearly about this when he says that you do not ha- have because you do not ask God. I would hate to come before God when all is said and done and when asking why he didn't move in certain ways for him to respond because you never asked. I would hate that that we don't see any transformation in our FAC family because we didn't ask. There are many reasons why God doesn't give us certain things. But it should never come down to the fact that we didn't ask for it. Have you asked for it? Have you asked uh, with boldness and with persistence? Sometimes you may think you're waiting on God, which may be true, but perhaps there are other times when it's really the other way around, when God is waiting on you. God is ready and eager and waiting to respond to us. He wants to hear our prayers. Why is he so eager to hear our prayers? Because he loves to provide for us, as a a father provides for a son. He loves to give us what we need. It is so rewarding for me, as a father, to provide for my children, to care for my children. There's no reward quite, quite like it. Um, And this is the last illustration that Jesus shares about a father and and a son. He said, if you have a son that comes up to you and asks for a fish or an egg, which of you as a father would give him a serpent or a scorpion? You wouldn't do that. Why? Because you know what a good gift is. You know how to prepare and provide the needs for your children. And if you, as a sinful man, know how to give your children good gifts, how much more will your heavenly Father be willing to provide the Holy Spirit? how willing God is to provide the Holy Spirit in order to empower you and enable you to live a God-honoring life. This is a helpful reminder that God is for you. God loves you. He wants to see your needs, uh, needs met. He wants to see you grow and transform. He is on your side. He is not some bully just picking on you for the sake of watching you squirm. He is your father who will give you everything you need if you ask. And so as we set our hearts on God's kingdom promises and we let those promises inform our requests, we can go to God in boldness and know that he is ready to help. We know that he has an ear that leans in our direction with a heart open to our need. And so as we close, I actually think it would be remiss of us if we didn't um, say this prayer that Jesus has offered to us together as a church family. This might seem very odd for some of you to say this prayer in unison, um, but I think it would be good, a good practice. Uh, I've chosen to use a more expanded version of the prayer that will uh, be familiar to you. But let me encourage you not to just read these words for the sake of, of reading them, just to recite them. Don't, don't uh, join out of obligation, but really approach this prayer as a prayer if I do feel it from the heart go to God and say Lord this is what I want for FAC we'll have the words up on the screen you can go ahead and put, put them up uh, and, and we'll do this together and once again let's, let's get some oomph behind this prayer as we come before God and we close our time in his study of, of his word our father who art in heaven hallowed be your name your kingdom come I pray that there would not be a day that goes by that we don't declare your name as holy. That it would be set apart and we would see the uniqueness for what it is and that we would know our place. Would your heavenly purposes reign in this place, Lord, in this church? Would your will be done in this church as you guide us? And even through transition as you guide us, Lord, would you you lead us to what's next? Father, I pray that even today you would sustain us. As we collect our offering, Father, we view this as you providing for the needs of this church family. And so I pray that you would bless uh, the the contributions and the tithes and the offerings, Lord, uh, in a way that does sustain FAC, Lord. Would you continue to to sustain us and bless us, and we would come to you daily uh, for dependence, Lord. We would depend on you daily. Help us to forgive as you've forgiven us, Lord. And as we walk as a community of believers, would you guide us down a path away from our own path that so often uh, succumbs to temptation, Lord. Deliver us from anything evil, anything that is not of you, Lord. We praise you, Father. And in your holy name I pray. Amen.